This is Dylan Wiseman. I'm the chair of Buckhalter's Trade Secrets and Employability Practice Group, and I'm also the host of our Trade Secrets and Employability podcast. Welcome to our podcast. We put this podcast together as a highlight reel, or best of reel, if you will, so that our listeners could get the benefit of our most distilled points. So sit back and enjoy as we take you through this highlight reel of our podcast for this last year. In 2016, Congress passed the Defend Trade Secrets Act, and we spent a fair amount of time this last year talking about complying with its various terms. And this is the one of the key discussion points that we handled this last year. One of the things I think that we would strongly recommend is that companies modify their existing uh, confidentiality agreements to reflect the, the new changes under the Defend Trade Secrets Act. So basically that if they cooperate with uh, an investigation, particularly if it's a federal investigation, uh, and they have to disclose some trade secrets, that information is protectable. I'll tell you, when I first saw that, I thought it was just the most oddball thing that the federal government would require to be in agreement. Because, I mean, I've been doing this for over 20 years. I've never seen a situation where there's some whistleblower element, but but the consequences are so severe. If you don't have these required language of a whistleblower uh, provisions in your confidentiality agreement, you can't get your fees. So you, so Lisa, I think is you could have a situation where you win, but your contract doesn't have it. And then what happens? And then you're out of luck in regards to recovering all of your fees. And so you could expend millions of dollars in attorney's fees. And yes, you could have a recovery and have prevailed, but when it comes down to it, you could have actually lost money on the case. And yeah, which is an interesting way for the federal government to get into this right. because it's a lot of social engineering yeah. where they, I think, really wanted American businesses to tune up their agreements and have these provisions to add this kind of oddball term to it to make sure that people are going back after 2016 to look at their confidentiality agreements and try to update those. We also went on to discuss the importance of having businesses that have employees in California have California-specific agreements. And here's the discussion. And one of the things that we used to see a lot more of was that you'd have companies that have operations all around the U.S. and they wouldn't have a California-specific agreement. And so after the changes to the labor code, uh, now you can't have a California employee if they live and reside here and work here. You can't have them under an, an Oregon uh, or Washington or you know, Minnesota choice of laws provision if that's where the company's headquartered. So right. it's a huge change. And what happens is, is we've also started to see is a there's a kind of a plaintiff's class action effort that chases after that too. Because if you've got dozens of employees in California, they're all under the wrong agreement uh, with a different state's choice of loss provision. That's a huge problem for a lot of businesses. And these are not the kind of things you need to be dealing with when you're trying to chase after your own IP and protect it. If an employee is left and you just, you know, trying to deal with these issues. Right. And Dylan, you and I are actually dealing with a case right now where we have an Oregon company with that's trying to start their business in California and they hired a California employee and made her sign a um, employment agreement that was trying to enforce Oregon laws, and now she's hired her own attorney yeah. and is suing the company for violation of you know Labor Code 925. And there are probably other employees in Correct. that business that are also under um, uh, another state's choice of laws provision. 
With Lisa Plowfuller and Jackie Bu, we also discuss the importance of a company's offboarding practices. And here's the discussion. Uh, improving the company's offboarding practices, because there's been several different studies, one of us, one of one, one of which was in The Economist um, a few years back, talked about how 80% of all data theft occurs internally, which I'm surprised the number is you know, that low, actually, because right. it seems like particularly with with millennials like you guys, um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, this struggle with who owns what, and they're so tech savvy that, uh, you know, we, we see all sorts of files uploaded to the cloud and to BitTerrents and USB devices. And so um, I think it's one of the really key important parts is to make sure that companies take the time when employees are leaving to sit down with them and talk about your expectations. So Lisa, what's your take on that? I totally agree. I think a lot of times departing employees really don't know about, they don't recall their confidentiality agreements. They don't really know what they are allowed to take and what they're not allowed to take when they leave the company. And I think it's in the company's best interest to set that, you know, in front of them, let them know and really have a dialogue with them in regards to what is a cust- what's considered a trade secret and what's confidential information from that company and let them know that. Yeah. There's so many problems that can be headed off early. Right. If you show, look, here's your agreement. This is what you signed. Do you remember signing this? And then they go, wow, okay, yeah, I guess I did sign that way back three years ago when I first came on board. But it's really that letting them know. And with Jackie Vu and Lisa Plow-Fuller, we went on to discuss the importance of appropriately triaging trade secrets matters. Um, One of the things that we have also come to learn is that these cases, when employees leave and you suspect that there's wrongdoing, they move really, really quickly. I mean, you've got a matter of probably days to seek a temporary restraining order if you think that there's some real theft of some sensitive data. And because of that, um, it's important for us as the lawyers, we have a kind of a, uh, uh, one direct person that we're reporting to. So uh, Jackie, can you talk with us a bit about kind of a central reporting structure to set that up and how, how that's been really helpful? Yes, um, I, would re- I would recommend the employer establishing a, a reporting group with a small group of personnel who have all the information, who have all the facts about this employee. You know, when I get a new case or when a client comes to me and says, hey, we have this situation with this, you know, former employee who may have taken trade secrets from our company, my first question is, okay, who, who did this person report to? Who did this person work with on a day-to-day basis? I want to know the names of all the, the key players that this employee interacted with. And so that's very important to kind of gather that core group of people. And with Jackie Vu and Lisa Plow Fuller, we went on to discuss the importance of hiring the right counsel from the outset of the dispute. Um, a case that we were involved in where we were brought in um, maybe a month after the lawsuit was filed um, to defend a company. And at that point, there was already a temporary injunction um, being requested by the, the plaintiff, the employer. And, you know, it moves very, very, very fast. Uh, you mean, you know, as a new lawyer, not knowing anything about this company, not knowing the underlying facts, you have to hop on this fast moving train and, you know, basically become an expert of everything that's happened for the last, you know, two years for this former employee. And so it's, it's, it's very 
it's 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 litig you know trade secret litigation is very different from commercial litigation in that it moves very fast. There's a temporary restraining order that's usually entered, and um, there's discovery that needs to be taken, and then it's followed usually by a preliminary injunction, and so it's taxing on the business, and it's again like you said, Dylan, made worse by inexperienced counsel when they don't know the trade secrets at issue or they don't comply with the law in identifying the trade secrets that are being sure. taken and, you know, we're dispute or we're, we're, we're encountering countless battles. Yeah. I mean, the, this area, um, the discovery process, the fact finding is always done under protective orders, which is um, a lot of litigators aren't familiar with how to proceed through the court process with protective orders um, computer forensics plays a huge role in this these these matters. Um, a lot of just straightforward commercial litigators don't have uh, background or experience in that. We then brought the Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility podcast to my other home office in San Francisco with Pete Mack and Alexa Grainer to talk about the importance of California confidentiality provisions. Uh, the importance of employers having separate standalone confidentiality agreements. Can you speak to that for a minute? Sure. Yeah, there's really a number of reasons why it's important, and I think it's really important all the way through the process uh, from when you first hire someone to later when problems may arise. Uh, it helps at the first onboarding meeting, if you have a short agreement that you show the employee, he signs it, he or she signs it, makes it very clear to them what their responsibilities are and what uh, the uh, penalties may be if they don't act right. Um, later, if the, when the employee leaves your employment, it's a good thing to do at the, at the uh, separation exit interview. Again, go over it with them, make sure they know what's involved. Uh, if you do run into problems, it's good in negotiating with the other side. You can send their, them or their attorneys a copy of this agreement and say, here's what your guy signed. Just be aware that we're going to enforce it. And finally, if you do come to litigation, a, a good, simple, straight-ahead agreement goes a long way towards convincing the judge or the jury that uh, you're in the right. Yeah, I think it's really important. We've seen a number of disputes where one party has an employee handbook and they try to say that that amounts as a contract and that they try to pursue a claim for damages arising out of the handbook. And for a lot of reasons, uh, that's difficult to convince a court that an employee handbook is necessarily a contract that can give rise to a claim for damages. I mean, it might be the case that your employee handbook says it pertains to confidentiality, which is helpful if you're trying to protect a trade secret, but it's really not, of course, don't really tend to view these as separate standalone agreements. Do you have a position on that, Alexa? Yeah, so Pete and I actually both worked on a case in which the employee handbook had language to the effect of, this is not an, an employment agreement. And that language was in, 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 inserted into the handbook to preclude an argument that, there was an implicit modification of an at-will employment relationship. So the purpose of that language was completely different than the impact it ultimately had in our trade secret case because when we were asserting on behalf of our client a breach of contract claim, the court looked at that language and said, no, the, the handbook says that this is not an employee agreement. So 
we were unable to use the handbook as an agreement, as a contract. One of the most important terms that an employer can have in its confidentiality agreements is an attorney's fees provision that enables it to recover damages in the event an employee leaves and takes trade secret information. And here's the discussion I had in San Francisco with Pete Mack and Alexa Grainer. As far as the, um, the contract itself, I'm a big believer that the contract should have an attorney's fees provision in it. Have you had the chance to give that some thought? Right. In, in most cases, it's not going to be the employee bringing a claim against the employer for trade secret appropriation or regarding the, the confidential information that is the subject of the agreement. So in almost every circumstance, it's going to be in the employer's interest to have an attorney's fees clause. There are other statutes that exist that under the UCL, for example, in which you might be able to obtain attorney's fees in connection with a trade secret case. But the standard upon which your, your burden of proof is going to be much higher, uh, if you include an attorney's fees clause in your confidentiality agreement, saying that the prevailing party in a dispute arising out of the agreement is entitled to attorney's fees, then that will often act as a strong deter deterrent to the employee. It's essentially telling the employee, listen, if you take our confidential information, then we're we can bring a lawsuit, and not only can we bring a lawsuit against you, you're going to have to pay for our attorney's fees. Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, I've been doing this for 20-plus years. I've never seen a situation where the employee comes after the employer trying to invoke the, the confidentiality agreement. It just never happens. It's always the employer chasing after the employee because the employee took or used their information. So if that's going to happen... Uh, and I think it's important to have these type of provisions in the confidentiality agreement. I would not want one of these kind of provisions in a standard employment agreement because then you could give rise to something like, you know, you, uh, well, they could sue you for wrongful termination or sexual harassment or discrimination. Uh, but in the separate standalone confidentiality agreement, I think it makes a ton of sense. From my vantage, one of the most important features of California unfair competition law is that it protects not only hard copy records and electronic files, but also the content of employees' memory. So here's our lengthy discussion that we have with Pete Mack, our hardened, battle-hardened litigator, about the importance of having contractual provisions that also pertain to memory. Um, one of the other issues that comes up all the time is people leave and they say, well, look, I, I left, I didn't take anything. I just, I, I knew the information of whatever the design formula is or the, or the customer identities, and that's how I'm able to go right after those same customers. Um, I think it's, you know, it's been the law in California that the memories of and the, the, the knowledge of these particular like customers or, or factual information is just as protectable as if it's on a thumb drive or um, on documents or on a USB device. Um, so, uh, Pete, what's your impression on how, how important it is to kind of convey in an agreement that also pertains their memories? It, it's, it's very important, and, it, and you do have to be... One thing to bear in mind is that California does not uh, use the inevitable disclosure doctrine. So just because the, they have it in their head, you can't enjoin someone from, from using information that they have. That's right. You do have to still go through and prove 
that the information that they used, even if they took it in their head, is in fact a trade secret. Right, to get an injunction. That's right. correct. Yeah, I mean, you can't just charge in and say, well, they know of our information. Therefore, they must have used it. Therefore, they must be. You have to have actual evidence. So that's a really good point. And um, I think that it's, it's also, and the same part of that is California, we don't recognize this white clean doctrine, which was in place before the Uniform Trade Secrets Act. It used to be before 1985 that the California's courts come out and say, employees can't be expected to white clean their memories. But you know, since the enactment of the UTSA, the Uniform Trade Secrets Act, uh, the California law has said, look, memories are just as protectable. And Lexa, do you have some thoughts on that issue as well? So to the extent the employer can help the employee distinguish between those two things, and they can use the confidentiality agreement as a tool to facilitate that discussion, um, I think it would be worthwhile and in their interest. Yeah, I think it's an important point because in every industry, they have skills that you develop, and there's also information you have access to. And I think that courts are mindful of the fact that you know, we don't follow this white clean doctrine and you are entitled to use, of course, your skills that you develop. But when you start to use or disclose information that's uh, protectable as a trade secret, that's when the courts tend to come. In our San Francisco podcast with Pete Mack and Lexa Grainer, we talk extensively about the interaction between millennials and ownership of intellectual property. And here's our discussion. Lastly, let's wrap up on for this one on, to talk a bit about uh, the importance of conveying to the employee that the employer owns all the confidential information and trade secret. Now, Pete, you've dealt with this issue quite a bit. Yeah, well, it's basically in the labor code, and so it's out there. But again, it's important to, to make it clear to the employee from the first intake interview and again at, at the exit interview that this is the case so that they know what the law is because, I mean, Employees aren't going to sit down and read the labor code before they take a job. Yeah. <laughs> and sales guys are notorious for saying, these are my customers. I developed them. Well, at the same time, they also got paid a commission and a salary for doing that. And the relationships under California law, where the customers are protected as a trade secret, that all is the property of the employer. And so the labor code basically has this blanket protection that Everything that any, an employee acquires by virtue of the employment relationship belongs to the employer, except for the pay stuff. Alexa and I had a case where that came up. It was exactly the situation where the salespeople left. They said, they're my customers. They're my friends. Mm -hmm. If uh, you know, if I know what... what uh, they almost felt like they had a duty to tell this information to their customers so that, so that they would move to the other employer. Yeah. And it's just wrong. Well, and I think it goes beyond just the sales context, actually. I think millennials, and I feel comfortable saying this because I'm probably the only millennial in the room. Sure. Um, is <laughs> we have, we have a, a very strong connection to our work product, and we have a sense of ownership over it. And it's, it's hard to grasp the legal concept that everything that we do for our employers does not belong to us. Yeah, I mean, you've got a whole generation of folks that are super tech-savvy and uh, don't really adjust well to this idea that your employer owns everything, uh, which will keep folks like Pete and you and me uh, busy for the rest of our, our lives. We went on to discuss the major change in the law that occurred in November of 2018 
around employee non-solicitation provisions. And here's my discussion with Pete Mack and Lexa Grainer. In California, uh, while we uh, recognize employees have the ability to leave and go to a direct competitor, and in the uh, field of uh, these solicitation provisions, customer solicitations is one route that is very well documented, very well recognized. A separate and very distinct type of solicitation provision also pertains to employee solicitation. So, uh, Alexa, there was a, a recent case that came out last year dealing with employee non-solicitation. This would be a provision where if you leave, you can't try to recruit and bring over your co-workers to another uh, company. And uh, you had a chance to write about this, so why don't you provide a, a short update about that? Right. So up until November of last year, 2018, employee non-solicitation clauses were, for the most part, considered valid in California. They were subject to a reasonableness standard. And that came from a case called Moyes. And the Moyes court held that a top executive who essentially raided his former employee, employer and took lots of the top performing employees, that was not a restraint on trade because it was a reasonable restraint. Um, the Supreme Court, in a case called Edwards, then subsequently held that we don't subject our statute that prohibits restraints on trade to a reasonableness standard. And in light of that ruling, uh, in November of 2018, we have this additional case that says an employee non-solicitation clause is going to be void if it imposes a restraint on trade. It doesn't matter, even if it's reasonable, it's going to be unenforceable. Yeah, it's an important case because it's really consistent with California's longstanding public policy that uh, we had this case, Moyes, which said, look, these we're going to consider these to be not that much of a restriction. It's a reasonable, narrow restraint on your ability to leave and go to work for another. And then, yeah, but Edwards says, look, we don't follow that. So California, and think now that the message has been sent to employers that you really do need to get these employee non-solicitation provisions out of your agreements. And it's another strong reason why folks uh, here in California should consider looking at their agreements and considering to remove those. The court also left open in the uh, employee non-solicitation case, the fact that the contract provisions might be unenforceable, but if you still have an employee rating situation where uh, you know, 15 employees leave in one day with no notice, uh, that you can still maintain what's called an interference claim that's a tort claim, it's not a contract. In California, in some industries, you can have a perfectly enforceable customer non-solicitation provision. And I discussed at length with Pete Mack and Lexa Grainer about the contours of enforceable customer non-solicitation terms. And building on that, let's talk a bit about customer non-solicitation clauses. Now, the law in California has been for quite some time that customer non-solicitation clauses, you can't use them where everybody in your industry knows who the customers are. I think we kind of agree with that. If everybody's fishing out the same small pond, the customers, you know, split their loyalty among a bunch of different, um, a bunch of different uh, vendors. Then you can't use this as a monopoly. Uh, but I think we've got a different set of facts where you've got industries that, where it takes a lot of time and effort to 
develop the so-called book of business. And Pete, you could talk a bit about what protections are available to employers through confidentiality agreements as far as uh, in certain industries where the customer identities and customer lists may be protected as traceable. Well, it, it again go, does go right back to having the agreement because the exception to the non-solicitation rule is that it has to be a trade secret. So there again, you have to, it's very helpful to be able to document that what you're protecting here really is a trade secret. Uh, and that would be, as Dylan said, areas where you have to expend a lot of time and effort identifying the particular customers and what their particular needs are, what their particular characteristics are, what they have bought in the past, uh, who are the decision makers, what's their what's their contact information, uh, what is their preferences between one product and another. These things do take a lot of work to, to get. They are valuable because they are not known. And if they are the subject of reasonable measures to keep them protected and, and, and secret, they are a trade secret and they can be protected under the law. Yeah, there, there are some industries that naturally lend themselves to this. Um, insurance brokers, uh, banks, professional services, subscription services, uh, mortgage brokers, where these customer lists, it takes a lot of time. You have to go to all those chamber of commerce meetings and you got to make all the cold calls, all this time and effort to develop the identities of those customers. And then they are afforded certain protections where under California law in those industries, I think we will continue to see that they, uh, courts will enforce the non-solicitation provisions because they're nothing different than just enforcing the Trade Secrets Act. It's the same protections. In the Trade Secrets Act, you can't solicit customers that are a trade secret. The contract doesn't add anything beyond what the statute already provides. The podcast then returned to Sacramento, where I met with Lisa Plautfuller and Jarrett Osborne-Revis to discuss the award of attorney's fees in trade secrets matters. In particular, we focused around bad faith attorney's fees, where a plaintiff pursues a claim that has no traction or validity. Lisa, let's uh, talk a little bit too. There's been a number of cases that have dealt with uh, attorney's fees and bad faith that have dealt with... uh, the the lack of an adequate investigation or lack of computer forensics, and you can speak to that. Right, so a lot of times companies are really afraid that a a departing employee will use their trade secrets at a competitor or a new employer. So they'll turn around and file suit without in a very short time frame where they have not conducted any type of investigation or any type of forensics. And so if a decision is made to file suit without any type of forensics or there's questionable forensics, such as the mere fact that, let's say, an employee accesses files um, but doesn't necessarily use them, they just access them, don't move them around, don't transfer them, and there's no additional evidence of misappropriation, those facts can really support a finding of bad faith for attorney's fees. Yeah, we have a case where the other side made a lot of hay out of the fact that certain files were accessed, and uh, access doesn't mean anything. Access just means that if somebody's sitting at their desk and uh, in the last few days before they left, they opened some files. Uh, so unless there's evidence, if you're dealing with electronic data theft, the best evidence is going to come out of the forensics. And we've seen cases where uh, the, the lawyers try to encourage the court to make the wrong finding about the forensics or they purposely don't look into uh, obvious areas that they should be looking for to uh, for forensics. So again, I look at this as another one of these symptoms of uh, bad faith. 
So we went on to discuss one of the other features of many bad faith trade secrets claims, which is that the plaintiff who claims it's had its trade secrets misappropriated somehow can't identify what those trade secrets are. And here's my discussion with Jared Osborne Revis and Lisa Plowfuller on that very topic. Trade secrets cases get going and uh, there's get into the discovery process. There's the uh, process that's known as the Codicil Procedure 2019-210 statement, which is uh, acts as a, a barrier for the plaintiff, the injured party, to do discovery about the trade secret misappropriation until they can identify with reasonable particularity what the trade secret is. And this is, again, one of these kind of checks and balances measures that the legislature has put in. You don't get to just go chase after a competitor and then um, say that almost anything is your trade secret. You've got to identify it. So, Jared, you and I have dealt with this issue quite a bit where we've had, come across um, companies that uh, claim that their trade secret misappropriation, that their trade secrets have been misappropriated, but then for one reason or another can't seem to tell us what it is. Exactly, and that leads to a uh, finding or indicia of subjective bad faith or that the lawsuit was brought for an improper purpose. And that is why the legislature enacted this code section, as Dylan mentioned earlier. Uh, you really want to drill down the trade secret misappropriation plaintiff on what exactly they are claiming was misappropriated. And if they have trouble providing that information in a statement or if they give you intentionally invasive discovery responses on that topic, uh, you can start to sniff out perhaps some type of improper purpose in the lawsuit itself. Right. So, I mean, in cases where the trade secrets are have been stolen and they've done the forensics, they know exactly what files have been uploaded. So uh, I spend a, a fair amount of my time dealing with these kind of issues where we say, well, look, you, you claim it's been misappropriated. You've supposedly done these forensics. Give us a printout of what it is that was misappropriated, and that'll help frame the scope of discovery. And if they dance around and try to avoid these issues, I'm always wondering, you know, what are their motivations? We then took the podcast back on the road and visited our Orange County office to have a discussion around customer lists and the importance of protecting customer information. That discussion was with Jason Goldstein and Sean Casey. And here's how that started. For a long period of time, California has recognized that in certain industries, the customer lists can be protected as a trade secret. And so, uh, Jason, I want you to spend a few moments here telling us about the framework under Labor Code 2860 that provides the kind of the basis for uh, California's position that this information belongs to the employer. Well, in general, uh, this Labor Code section provides that uh, anything that an employee acquires by virtue of their employment belongs to the employer. Uh, at face value, people may say, okay, you have a stapler on the desk uh, and that belonged to the employer, so clearly that stays. But then the question becomes, what about items that they learn? What about people they have contact with? Those things under the law, both under the common law of California as well as under the trade secret statute, can become uh, property of the employer and not the employee. There's this general framework under which a company who provides all of the blood, sweat, and tears to turn a universe of potential customers into actual customers should be provided a certain amount of protection for the value they have acquired. Just imagine getting a list of a million different names 
you don't know which one buys your product. You hire a team of people to call all those million people and you winnow it down to a very small percentage that actually do. That gives you something valuable. That's something that should be protected. Yeah, it's one of these things where California, because we uh, don't allow for covenants not to compete, you can leave, go to direct competitor the same day. We take a real expansive view about what information um, is owned by and uh, is in the possession of and can, can only be used by the employer. My shareholder colleague from our Orange County office, Jason Goldstein, then went on to explain the importance of the More Life versus Perry decision under California law. Yeah, now More Life uh, v. Perry is uh, one of the seminal cases in trade secret law protecting customer lists. And I can still recall a, a case that I had when I obtained a preliminary injunction and the Superior Court judge said, More Life is my Bible, More Life will be your Bible, and that is how your trade secret injunction is going to be drafted. Uh, in More Life, there were a bunch of uh, customer names put on a Rolodex uh, at the former employer's office. Uh, there was also information about customers that the uh, employee actually kept you know, in his brain. And when that employer left, he took the Rolodex and he also took the information that was in his brain and he used it to directly compete with the employer. The Court of Appeal in More Life said that's wrong. That information, whether you remembered it, took it, or in either fashion, belongs to the employer and deserves protection. Basically, if you knew or learned of something while you were at your former employer that would qualify as a trade secret, here, the identities of persons that utilize the services you are seeking to sell, that's something that's protected. That's something you can't just use without the former employer's permission. In our episode featuring customer lists, I interviewed Jason Goldstein, and we continue to discuss the readily ascertainable by proper means standard, which is unique to California law. One of the interesting uh, points as well in this area is that when we argue more life, that we argue that, well, we've got this customer list, uh, invariably the other side tries to say, well, they can't be, that information can't be protected because... I could go out and find it if I Googled it. I could go out and find it in trade directories. I could go out and find it in other public sources. And one of the ways I know that I'm dealing with uh, people, lawyers that are really skilled in this field is they never make that argument. Because uh, under ABBA Rubber versus Sequest, which is another case that's been in our book since the 90s, it doesn't matter if you can find customerless information on the internet. It doesn't matter if you can find it in the trade directories. It doesn't matter if you can find it in the phone book. California protects all that sweat equity and that hard work and effort to go out and make those calls, um, reach out to those customers, go to all those countless um, chamber of commerce meetings to try to develop a book of business. We will protect that information from its misuse from when um, employees leave and solicit. The second episode that we recorded in Orange County featured leading edge and bleeding edge companies and the concerns around protecting trade secret information in those highly technical environments. And here's my discussion with Sean Casey and Jason Goldstein. 
You know, one of the things you can do, whether you're a small uh, high technology company or you're a very large company like uh, large aerospace or automotive manufacturers, you can take steps uh, every week or every month or periodically to actually you know, document your trade secrets, protect them, assign a value for those trade secrets and the like. So for example, whether you're a large or small company, you can certainly get employee uh, non-disclosure and trade secret acknowledgement agreements when you hire that key employee. Yeah, and I think it's important because the standard for protecting trade secrets has got to be reasonable under the circumstances. And if you are the type of high-tech business where there's a lot of investment into the business by uh, venture capital firms uh, and other private private equity firms, they're going to basically require that there's a lot of technical measures around protecting the information. Uh, there are a lot of startups, however, that just don't have those kind of resources or the means or the ability uh, to take those type of efforts. So that it's really important to sit down uh, with your CIO and even HR folks and sit down and try to map out uh, some measures that protect the, the trade secrets um, on uh, from the technical measures and from uh, contractual measures. And uh, for those startups that really don't have all of the capital to put in all the bells and whistles, you can still have this protection if you keep things on a need-to-know basis. As uh, Dylan said, there is kind of a, a sliding scale, and it just has to be reasonable, and that uh, you know whether it's reasonable can be determined by the size of the company and what's done. There's five people there. You don't need to have Fort Knox. Right, exactly. Good point. There you have it. There's our year in review. And having spent the last 24 years on the front lines of trade secrets and unfair competition cases, I think it's really important for California businesses to have a strong working knowledge of all of these issues. If you have any questions or want more information, please reach out to us at www.buckhalter.com. I'm Dylan Wiseman, and on behalf of the Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility Practice Group, we look forward to seeing you next year. Thanks again.